So the subject of the talk is 3.8 billion years ago. Sometimes there are markers in time that are significant Dharma markers. Some 13.5 billion years ago, it is said, the explosion of nothing producing something occurred called the Big Bang. Where all of this materiality, periodic charts, all of the form was created. In fact, space itself was created in that moment as well as time. What It is not a legitimate question to ask where it occurred because as one physicist explained in a lecture, it occurred everywhere. Now there's another marker that I would like to talk about tonight that I think is tremendously significant for what we're doing here on the mat. And that happened 3.8 billion years ago. And it is perhaps one of the most interesting facts in all of science because in science it is fact-written that at that moment on the earth, life occurred. And this is the amazing moment. This is the amazing uh, part of that truth. It happened once. In my mind, before reading that, I thought in every murky pool and bubbling swamp around some time, life kind of formed on its own. I sort of knew it wasn't forming now into new, it wasn't arising anew now, but that it was all an adaptation from those earlier times. But in fact, it occurred once and once only. And the reason they know that is because genetically they can see the disposition of all forms of vegetable and animal life, having consistent genetic codes. In fact, grass has 50% of the genetic makeup of, as human beings. So it all happened in that instant. And of course, as you go further out on the evolutionary scales, you can find more and more genetic similarity to our own, like in the great apes, which have about 98% of the genetic material as our own. But what's significant to this, and what I would like to dwell and talk about tonight, is that at that moment something happened where the inanimate became animated, where consciousness, awareness, took the form and invested itself in inanimate objects, in an inanimate life form, into consciousness itself. And that incursion of awareness into the inanimate, producing an animation, 
of life occurred one time. And all, everything else is an adaptation to that single instant moment in which all things were together. We must remember that at the moment it infused itself in life, all of life was held together in common denominator. And as that, whatever it was, a protozoa or amoeba or whatever that one-celled creature was, and it divided and divided again and again, and each sort of swam into far reaches of their same pool, and that pool became other pools, and other pools and other adaptations occurred. As there were threats and security issues around each of those particular one-cell creatures, they adapted differently to the stresses of their environment. So what is to be remembered is that they were at one point all commonly shared the same aliveness in one cell. And that even as that shell, cell, cell differentiated, the common denominator that they shared between that life form and other life forms remained the same. Although the numerator, the adaptation principles, the way they changed in physical appearance was different. So the numerator, the top part of the fraction, altered. The denominator was consistently there as it was in the beginning when it was originally infused as a, as a single cell. And then as it spread out over time, over a great deal of time, 3.8 billion years, and over that time, higher forms of species evolved until something, another remarkable adaptation resulted and that was the ability for some creature, wherever it might have occurred, to have abstract thinking. That was an adaptation. Now it's interesting because I visited in Seattle, they had this fossil, three million year old fossil. Now we're talking about 3.8 billion years as the moment of inception of life. But three million years ago, they had this fossil called Lucy that was found in somewhere in Africa. Ethiopia, that's where it was found. And they had a picture of what Lucy would have looked like given her skeletal remains. And she was about three feet high, hairy all over. And uh, when you look at her, She's remarkably human-like, much more human-like, I would say. Well, kind of a cross between uh, the primates and the human species. But you you would have treated her with some degree of humanness had you seen her, because she was walking upright. She had limbs and fingers and toes, and she was obviously well on her way to to for us being her offspring. And I was wondering when I was seeing this, because it was a really remarkable exhibit, whether she had abstract thought, whether it happened at that point or whether it happened a little later down on the chain. Because as they depicted Lucy and her uh, 
community, and there was a community of other people, other hominids like her, who were around, they would gather and eventually they formed, you know, hunter and gathering societies. And at some point, they had the ability to reason. Now, that's significant. Very significant. I'm not sure. I'm, I think that other creatures have some rudimentary ability to reason. I don't think we're exclusive in that. In fact, I saw a documentary on gorillas, and just as a little sidebar, but there was this very aging gorilla leader who had a rival, and the rival was causing increased hostility towards the leader, and the leader, who was aging, couldn't fight the rival because he would have lost. And the troop was kind of divided as to which side they were taking, So what he did, and I thought this was remarkably intelligent, he took the whole troop up to the very top most peak of wherever their habitat was, where it was very cold, and he just sat down. And there was a bunch of restlessness and turbulence about being so cold, and he kept them there day after day. Eventually, after a few days, without food, and being freezing, the rebellious youth who was the rival leader got up in a huff and left, and a bunch of the pack followed him. And then as soon as he did, the leader, the aging leader of the pack, after they had left, descended the mountain with his loyal followers. So that was the way he handled the difficulty. Now that's pretty good. Not many of us would have first nonviolence, right? <laughs> but but just the just the, uh, the the sense of sound judgment in that. I thought, wow, there's something going on there. So I'm not claiming that abstract thought is our domain only, but when it did happen, it gave us the opportunity to look at something and picture a future we could have with it. A tree we could see in different animation, in different arrangements than just what it was. We could see it as firewood or we could see it as making tools or we could see it in different... And so we had the ability to abstract time and say we could be building something with this or that. And that sense of being able to abstract time is very important to this talk, so hold that thought. Because immediately, and I think very quickly, after that adaptation of abstraction occurred, the capacity for subjective experience occurred as well. Because as soon as we have time, as soon as we have the thought that we could do something in time, then there is a doer who is doing the whatever uh, activity needs to be done. And so we create ourselves within that abstract reasoning through having a subject of experience about it. Now let's remember this. This is all happening in the adaptation and the evolution of the numerator. The denominator is untouched, as it has been since the first inception of life 3.8 billion years ago. 
and is commonly shared, the common denominator of all life is commonly shared and could not be otherwise. And it's only the appearances that have changed and have been accentuated and have adapted over all those years. But when you have a subjective experience, not just this, I bring this down to your practice, okay? So right now it's a little abstract, okay? But I bring this down to why you're sitting here. So, but you have to stay with me. <laughs> so once we have the capacity to think in time, and we have a sense of ourselves moving along in time with that thought process, and we have a sense of ourself, then we have a memory of that sense of self as well. And it's all induced by having the ability to abstract, to think ourselves into being. We exist because we think ourselves into being. But we have been such for such a long period of time. There is such almost a genetic disposition to think ourselves into being. That it is the momentum of that thought has such weight. It is not just any thought. If any of you have ever witnessed a child being born... I believe that an infant develops almost in accordance with the evolutionary patterns. Like there's in, in, in zoology, biology, it's said that ontology recapitulates phylogeny. What that means is that as the child in embryo grows, it grows through the evolutionary uh, way that we evolved as a species. For instance, at some point, an embryo has a tail. It has gill fins because we pass through the phase of being an amphibian or a reptile or whatever. Whatever. I, also, I believe that the way we are born and the way we evolve also mark that evolutionary history as well. Because if you've ever seen a child born, they are born in complete common shared denominator. They have no sense of spatial differentiation between themselves and anything else, including the environment of life. They are just floating in the sea of something, and there's no sense of differentiation. And then necessitated, functionally necessitated, they have to differentiate. You can't live like that, grow up like that, and expect to survive in this culture. And so they have to adapt, and they do, and they adapt with where it comes from. I have no idea, but they get a sense of themselves within life and all the burdens therein. And finally, the burdens of their life and the sense of self can, and it's rare, but those of us in the room had this occur, where you reach a threshold in which abstracting ourselves starts wearing thin and causing the uh, an enormous amount of pain 
And we look out and we just wonder what all this pain is about. And there's a deep yearning in our heart to return to the shared denominator of life. The shared denominator of life. And so in some ways we go back through the evolutionary process in order to do that. We return to 3.8 billion years ago. Now, we don't have to live 3.8 billion years to return because the common shared denominator has been with us the entire time. How could it not be? It's only the adaptations that have changed. And therefore, it's not as if we have to find something. It's already found. We just have to rediscover it. But because we spend so much time focused on the appearances of life, which are the adaptation, the numerator quality of life, we have lost any ability to sense where the common denominator of life might be. We look for it. We don't see it. Because when we look, all we're interested in and focus upon are the appearances, the shapes. Because it's within the shapes that I get my distinction and uniqueness. You see, I don't get my uniqueness, which is as a sense of self, from the numerator's point of view, from the differentiation point of view, where I can strive, where I can work willfully and energetically, is towards my differentiation, my separation, my uniqueness. And that's the only way I know to work. Because everyone around me is working in that direction and pointing in that way. And so where I'm caught, what I believe in, is the only the sense of what I can see, smell, taste, touch, feel. What's concrete, what's very... And you can see from the way our culture has has manifested how important appearances are. Right? Now, we want to stand out, which is very interesting, you see, but we don't want to be, if we stand out too much, we become seen as being strange or weird. So we want to stand out. We want to be better than. We want to raise our head above the average crowd. Nobody wants to be average. Everybody wants to be above it. Something, right? But not too much because then we become strange to each other. And so we are governed by those appearances even as we try to find our uniqueness within them. Are you following this? And so we now work, we feel the problem, we feel the tension of of our own uniqueness and our own sense of separation and all the ways that we've invested in the world of form to be different and separate from one thing and, and how it's just not working because it keeps rubbing. You know, when you start separating things out, as we do, they ru- things rub up against each other. Two people will rub up against each other. And so there's all kinds of infighting and there's all sorts of war and violence and, 
And just kind of the, when you have six billion individual things rubbing up against each other, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. We reach a threshold in which we just can't endure in this way anymore. And I think as a society, we have reached a cultural threshold, both because of population, limited resources, environment, on and on, in which we have to reassess whether the way we have invested in appearances is true, is, is valid. Ask, at least we can ask the question. And most of us know the answer anyway because there, I don't think, there, there are few fears like the fear of intimacy. Now why is that true? Because what we like people to invest in is our appearance. That's where 90% of our energy goes towards having a good and nice appearance. But when you sit down with somebody who's interested in more than you, more than your appearance, and they're willing to move, merge with you, there's often a panic there because you and the other person quite likely reaches a point where they become afraid of what you might see. Because you're going below the superficial, where we've invested our energy. And we're afraid of, really, of not living up to their expectations. We're really afraid of the emptiness we sense is in there. Which is the common denominator, which is revealed through an intimate connection. Because one doesn't stop with just the place where most of us arrest our attention on the appearance. And so we get frightened. And we don't really know what we're frightened of, but we close ourselves down, seal ourselves off, go back up to the numerator, find some reason to object to that partner, turn her back and walk away, or set limits where we will not go as a couple any further. You see, the denominator has never been more accessible. But as long as we're living the wondrous life of youth, which many in this room are, and you have all the empowerment of your age and the vitality and vigor of your age, why turn towards the denominator. Because you're, you're the best, you're, you're at the, the high light of your life. And the world is governed by that. It's, it, it's governed by that strength. It's governed by that energy and self, self-fulfillment. And as we age, and many of us in the room have reached that point, there comes a point when we have lost our social, uh, society no longer invests in us in the same way, does it? 
I mean, you see, I'm a, I'm a baby boomer. And I was in the 60s, you know, we were like, oh, yeah, 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 all of that. And then, like, we became less and less focused on. Now we're like a, an afterthought in some of these advertising agencies. You know, it's like, it's interesting being an afterthought after having had so much. <laughs> I saw on TV, I'm going to bring this on. I saw on TV a, a numerator meeting a denominator. I I happened to turn on our news channel, an ABC news channel, in which the news announcer was interviewing Eckhart Tolle. And Eckhart Tolle, for those of you who do not know, wrote The Power of Now, and it's very, very deep dharma. And his whole demeanor is very um, presence. He's, he's, just, uh, he, he's just a very awake man. So... <laughs> It was so interesting to me. I, I waited through the, all of the news just to get to the last three minutes in which he was being interviewed. And so the interviewer was trying to uh, figure out why his book had sold like three million copies and all of this, and he was getting acclaim on the Oprah Winfrey show and all this. And so he's trying to figure out you know, who this guy was. And he says, at some point he says, listen, do you mean... Just tell me, because I was reading your book. If I put you in a room by yourself for a day, you wouldn't go mad? (laughs) That's the numerator talking to the denominator. (laughs) And Eckhart says, no, I'd be very happy. But the two, the two lines of the fraction, it's very important to understand that the, what separates those lo- that, that, lo- that fractional line that separates a numerator from the denominator and a fraction is just the thought of I. That's all it is. And the resistances we have to letting in anything unknown because the denominator is not known. The numerator is where appearances are. The numerator is where change is known. The numerator is where you can secure your life. But the denominator is unknowable. In that moment that awareness took form 3.8 billion years ago, the moment a child is born, they're in an, an unknowable sea. And we have invested so much in the, the established way to know things which is what appearances do to each other, is get them known as quickly as possible so that they can be sized up and competed and evaluated. Because that we establish a whole set of rules and principles on the numerator that have nothing at all to do with the denominator. A whole set of laws come into being like the law of death. And we bring that through. We, those laws are created from the sense of me in time.
and all of Buddhism or any spiritual, truly sincere spiritual tradition is meant for us to see through all of the forms and investment within those forms that we have been taken to be so valid and so significant in our life to see the limitation and the pain associated with them. That's it. Why? So that we would be willing at some point to release the investment we have in the line of the, of the, of the fraction that separates the numerator from the denominator so that we can know true union once more. But oftentimes, the closer we get to commonality, to interconnectedness, the more we have cultural bias against just that. The West has a very strong bias against love, it thinks it's soft. It doesn't have any strength. That's why its borders are well formed. And fences are high. And guns are loaded. To maintain the sense of significant uniqueness within the boundaries National, familial, individual. And to keep out any sense of the threat of the unknown. And every once in a while, sometimes by trauma or catastrophe, there's a hole blown in the fraction line. I'll tell you a hospice story. A young woman in her mid-30s was dying of some sort of cancer. She had two uh, very young children, nine and ten. And as she was dying, she asked to be taken to the, our inpatient unit out of her home. And we thought that was an unusual request because usually we like to keep people in their home to die at home, especially around their family so that everyone could be apart. But she insisted, so we took her and her husband and her two children off to the inpatient unit of our hospice. We got her in bed. The hospice staff who had transported her were there. Her husband was there and her two children were there. And we were all around her bed. And as soon as she got into that new situation, that new hospice environment, she started to actively die. Now that's not so strange, but what was totally unique and perhaps the only patient in 17 years of hospice work that this happened with that I know of, she started to tell us what it was like to die. There we were around her bed and she was actively dying and reporting to us what, the, what that was like. Most people are either too weak to do that or they're in coma and can't do that. 
But she was neither, and so she was saying, my God, she would say, I can no longer see anymore. And she said, and then she kept going through a whole series of sense doors that she lost, and I think she came to, I I can no longer hear anymore. And then she said, oh, I'm no longer in my body. And then she tried to say something and physically died. Now, we were all around her bed, and we were in rapt attention, just as you are listening to this story, because it's as if the secret of the denominator is about to be revealed. And we were just, we, we were lost in this mystery. She had taken us to the brink of something that words could not move us any further. And we were all in this wondrous state, and we were like that for several minutes around the bed. And it was only broken by one of the children who after several minutes of being in this awe and wonder started to sob because he at that point realized his mother had died. And then all of us became supportive of the family who then started grieving and lost the wonder. But it was that moment of death in which a hole was opened a hole between the numerator and the denominator. And we all passed through it in speechless wonder. Before the numerator closed itself back up and we had to work with the emotional response of the children. That's not that unusual for the numerator to open. It's trying to open all the time. But the sense of I gathers enormous momentum to keep it closed, to keep it shielded, to keep it tight, to keep it constricted. Usually, it's around something like a a disaster results, like 9-11 comes to my mind. So the buildings fall down, 3,000 people die. There is a moment there when everybody feels the vulnerability and falls into the denominator. Where we just, like, our safety has been eliminated. But what happens is that the mind quickly closes up that space with anger. In that space, there is enormous love and connectedness. In fact... New Yorkers who couldn't close that fractional line completely because the effects of 9-11 were with them day after day as they saw the smoke billowing off out of their city. And so they were exposed to that eternal hole, said that they were everyone, almost everyone in the city reported that they were a kinder, gentler city for a long period of time. Because the hole in the denominator was blown wide open. But for the rest of us who were far away from that, who could look at it with some dispassion, could quickly come to vengeance and try to find out who did it and, do, and then retaliate so we could stay safely and garner more safety within the numerator of our life. But these opportunities, often caused through tragedies that blow the sense of self open, are really gaps and openings to something that is very mysterious and beyond, something that has traveled with us over eons of time, 
that has never changed, although the numerator changed, the denominator has never changed. It's never altered. It is is now as it was 3.8 billion years ago when it initially took form in that one cell organism. And through all the adaptations, through all the changes, through all the evolutionary responses and reactivity, the denominator has been commonly shared by all living beings. And it is only our thought of differentiation that has kept us from them. And when we invite metta, we are trying to find a whole through which the denominator can come forth once more. That is the point of metta. The point of metta is not to say the phrases. It's to see that the differences that we have focused on are irrelevant. The neutral person, the enemy, all the way that we've invested, this person being a certain way, when we can be quiet, when we can see them as themselves, we can open our heart because our heart will open to the common denominator that we all share. And that is called love. Now how does all of this relate to sitting? I hope it does for you because it's just as likely that it isn't. I don't know because we can't know, that's why we check in with you on interviews, what you're doing inside of there, whether you're numerating yourself or denominating yourself. (laughs) But if we keep our thoughts going in all of the comparison and judgments and all the way that we're competing against the person next to us, trying to sit longer, trying to be a more perfect this or that, We are just adapting ourselves further into the numerator of life. And when we are quiet, because quiet is the door in, stillness has not changed. Stillness does not alter. Stillness is like the space in this room. Right? People come and go within the space, but the space does not change. The walls could crumble, the space remains. Stillness is exactly like that. It's only the noise that creates a differentiation. It's only our investment in the word, seeing through the word, each word denoting something to be separate and distant and very different than the knower. And so as we invest in the word, we further differentiate. We further separate. We create the distances between ourselves and the rest of everything. And as we get quiet, we begin to feel the elephant in the room. How could we not? We've never lost that. We've just looked the other way.
And when we look, when we understand how to access the denominator, and that it's the fra- it's the fraction line is permeable. And it's not that we have to eliminate the sense of self. We just have to make it a dotted line so that we can functionally operate because we still do on this plane of existence. We have to say, hi, how are you? Get to work, know all the functional things that we have to do and our level of knowledge and everything to be able to do the work we do. It's not to try to erase that level one. It's just to let the denominator in so that it informs us, so that it isn't held hermetically sealed, so that there's no seepage of the denominator. into We want the seepage because therein lies the heart of life. Therein bubbles forth the connectivity of life. Therefore, that, what, that, that's what makes life livable on every form and expression. And we can bring any problem to bear by this use of fraction. Listen, just listen carefully. And just see, see it for yourself. So you have knee pain. Or any problem that arises in the course of the meditation. Let's, let's take inadequacy because... Again and again in the groups, I hear that common theme. And if we try to solve it, work on it, if we try to chisel it to a different form and to a different shape, we're keeping it entirely separate from the denominator, which will trans- in which we will transcend this inadequacy immediately upon entry. But... We try to keep it so, let me go here and let me, we we do workshops, all numerating it. When we're quiet with it, when we're willing to look at it, when we're willing to just be present to it, we bring it, it falls into the denominator. And we can't sustain the assumption that there's something wrong with me when we're no longer feeling the sense of me. Just in quiet, the denominator eliminates the problem because no prob- all problems exist in the numerator. Problems cannot form in the denominator of life. I hope we all see that. So if we bring the problem we have into the denominator just by being quiet to it and with it. Then the problem fades. But the, here's what we have to be careful of. Many of us like having problems because it keeps us functionally relevant in the numerator. It keeps us working on something. It keeps us very much intact. But let us not pretend that the denominator is there for us at all times. 
and in the service of great love. And that this is what meditation is about. This is the non-clinging that Joseph talked about last night. Because the clinging occurs through the activity in the numerator. And for us to descend into stillness, then there is the release and the surrender of differences. We then know ourselves fully. Or as a functioning person, I can tell you my name, address, and statistics. And as something far beyond represented by the word. There's a coexistence of form and formless. A beautiful manifestation in which nothing is denied and everything is accessed. So as we sit, how do we sit? Is the intention coming from our individuation or from the pole of interconnectedness to that point in time, 3.8 billion years ago, when all life became animated. Let us rest there for a moment or two. Thank you. Can we sit for a moment? And if you're quiet enough, you can feel the joy of the wellspring across the fraction line. You can feel your birthright, your true birthright, not your family's birthright, not your heritage. but your birthright in time when time was created.
Enjoy yourself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.